I am honored and thankful to have this opportunity to preach before a community that has meant so much to me in these last four years. And I am thankful to Dr. Glower and to Dr. Gregory, even though they're not here today, um, for nominating me for this award and for their guidance and affirmation in this last year. I have preached a grand total of four times before this sermon. Each one of those times, I selected a text that I felt I connected with, but this time around, it appears that the text has chosen me. A week ago, I was sitting with a friend, expressing my anxieties and my fears, as well as, a bit paradoxically, gratitude for how God has worked in my life during these last handful of years. After reading through the text I thought I had chosen, she looked at me and said that it seemed my life had some parallels to this passage. Upon further reflection and her ministering to me with this text, it turns out that she was right. At the beginning of the passage, we read, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. En route to Haran, in order to marry one of Laban's daughters on Isaac's orders, and fleeing from Esau's wrath, the sun had set, and it was time for Jacob to rest. This is the first time that Jacob appears by himself, being in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere, in a completely ordinary place. Jacob resigned for the night, using a stone for his head. The narrator then points out that Jacob dreams, which is what many of us do on any given night, except that the narrator indicates that this is not an ordinary dream. The narrator's use of behold draws attention to the fact that this is no mere matter of biology or psychology. Behold is used three times in succession, each time preceding something more magnificent and awe-inspiring than the previous uses. Behold, look, don't miss this. A stairway is reaching from earth to heaven. But then behold, note this. It's not just a stairway, but a stairway with angels ascending and descending on it. Heavenly beings are breaking into the earthly realm. As if this wasn't mysterious enough, the third behold encompasses God himself, standing above it all. Earlier in this chapter, Isaac blessed Jacob and asked that God would give the blessing of Abraham to him and to his descendants. And in this theophany, we see that it is given. In verses 13 and 14, God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
So Jacob has the same relationship to Abraham and to Abraham's God, just as his father Isaac had. Not only does Jacob receive the patriarchal promise, however, he is given a promise especially for him and his status as a wanderer. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wait a second. Jacob is receiving this blessing from God? Jacob the supplanter? Jacob who is fleeing from Esau and fleeing from his past? Through him all families will be blessed? Well, yes. Because, as it turns out, we're all broken and have done less than stellar things in our lives. And God will reveal himself to anyone and call on anyone that he so chooses and on his own terms. So in this encounter, we notice a couple of things about God. First, God is not confined to certain times or places. As I've already mentioned, Jacob was out in the wilderness. He was not in what one would deem a holy or a sacred place. He was out journeying and fell asleep when he grew weary. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't in temple. He probably hadn't even given any thought to God. And yet, God broke in unexpectedly and unannounced and unapologetically. The fact that God comes colliding into the earthly realm reveals that the dichotomy between the sacred and the secular is a false divide. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is no place we can go to escape God's presence. God is not limited to an hour or two on Sundays or Wednesdays. He's not bound to your daily morning devotionals. These are certainly times when we can experience God's presence, and they are necessary in the life of the church and in worship. But they are not the only ways that God makes himself known. When I was in Huntsville, I would often go to the Duck Pond a few blocks down from Sam Houston and read plays there. It was on one such day in my second year that I suddenly felt compelled to seek out a community of faith. After my dad passed away in 2006, the weak foundation that my faith had nestled in collapsed. And I kept church and God away at arm's length for three years. But something stirred in me in the stillness of that place. And I found myself drawn back into the grace and love of God over the course of the next few months. Shortly after I was baptized in the August of 2010, I was running along Huntsville's Little Hills uh, when I felt a calling to go into ministry. God collided into the mundane activities of my life and turned my world upside down. Or right side up, as I've also heard it put that way as well. God can crash into your world when you're out for a run, when you're getting coffee with a friend, when you're attending to a garden. Jacob didn't realize that he was in the presence of God. Fearfully, with awe, he proclaims that this place is the house of God and that this is the very gate of heaven. How often do we forget or take for granted that God is in every place, 
that the gate of heaven is so near to us. Another thing that we notice is that God will call people regardless of their merit or their feelings of inadequacy. He will call in spite of fear and of or pride. As you know, Jacob's track record isn't exactly spotless. This encounter with God takes place after he has deceived Esau out of not only his birthright, but also out of the blessing that he should have received from their father. There hasn't been any indication that Jacob should receive such a significant promise and blessing from God. He isn't repentant, and he isn't sorrowful. And yet, rather than condemnation, God places a great calling on his life. When I first felt called to ministry, and subsequently to seminary, I don't think I quite fully grasped the weight of this. I was prayerful and very aware of the doors that God was opening that led me to Truett, and I obediently walked through them. However, once I arrived and began classes, the weight of it all hit me, and I was suddenly faced with fears and insecurities that felt too big for me to handle. What am I doing at Truett? with all of these people who have been Christian for most of their lives or have degrees in religion? What is hermeneutics, and what does it mean to do theology? Pretty soon it's going to be found out that I don't belong in this place. Nevertheless, I worked as hard as I could, and God, in his grace and mercy, revealed to me that this was, in fact, the right place. And he began to call me, to other things. During my first semester, I assumed that I would not actually participate in vocational ministry until after I graduated because I was completely ill-equipped and then I would have lots of knowledge and stuff by the time I graduated, right? So I served guest chicken for a couple of years until a flyer regarding spiritual life positions caught my eye. With a nudge from my sweet husband, he encouraged me to apply for resident chaplain position. So I did, thinking that the interview experience would at least be beneficial. That's good. Um, yet here, too, God called me beyond what I thought I was capable of. God comes crashing into these places of insecurity, fear, and doubt. He calls you along a path that you probably couldn't and wouldn't have imagined for yourself. Maybe you came to Truett expecting to go into youth ministry, but now you think that God might be calling you to social work. Maybe you are expecting to pursue a PhD in order to pursue the calling of a professor, only to find that you are right now being called to pastor a church. Or maybe you felt pretty sure that you would never go into hospital chaplaincy or work with children, and at least for the next year, you're going to be ministering to both in the same context. <laughs> maybe you no longer feel called to vocational ministry. Maybe you are running away from a call. Wherever you feel like you are, Trust that God knows what he is doing and that he will provide for you the people and the resources to, resources to support you in your call. 
You will do things imperfectly. You will experience failure. But there is grace in that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit and the ability to learn and grow through both your successes and failures because success will come too. When God collides into our world, that is all well and good, but there are a couple of questions that remain. What are we to do when we recognize the collision of these worlds? And what happens when God is silent, when we need a word and direction from him the most? After Jacob realizes that he has experienced God in the wilderness, early in the morning, he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. This ordinary stone becomes a sacred symbol for Jacob's experience. The anointing with oil consecrates or sets the stone apart from others and also stains the stone so that it can be properly identified by those who follow. The renaming of the place represents Jacob's direct access to God as well as emphasizes the continuity between his experience and the continuing significance of that place. So it is important that you too reflect on your experiences with God and erect pillars or altars to commemorate those experiences as a form of worship. Whether those altars are books that impacted you in a specific season of your life or people who spoke words of encouragement and direction, or a place that represents transformation and growth. In those places that you've encountered God, whether through the form of a calling or during seasons that felt particularly dry or during times when you least expected it, hold those in your heart and your mind and remember how he moved through it. Where are those places in your life that you have been deeply affected by God? This image of altars is one of the reasons that I was so drawn to this text. As my time at Truett is quickly coming to a close, I have been reflecting on those places and those experiences in which I've met God. My acceptance letter to Truett is an altar. My time at Chick-fil-A is an altar. Preaching my first sermon and then stepping into preaching two and I really would have rather substituted it is an altar. Clinical pastoral education is an altar. Truett is an altar. Truett has been a place full of assignments and discussions that have challenged me. Professors who cared not only about my learning of the material that they so passionately taught, but also about my development as a person and as a minister. Friends who have come alongside of me and loved me and encouraged me and affirmed me. That last, that last question still remains, though. What do we do when we don't hear from God? That is where the act of remembrance comes in. These altars are not meant to be trophies that are collected, things that we call upon to conjure up warm feelings. These altars are acts of remembering the actions of the living God of times when he met you in your wilderness experiences, or times when you weren't even aware that God was in those places, or times when you thought that God made a mistake in calling you. 
This language of remembering evokes the scene of Jesus with his disciples, asking them to partake of his body and blood in remembrance of him. This remembrance calls us to action through faith and hope. When we feel disoriented and confused, unable to tell the top from the bottom or the left from the right, we would do well to step back and to remember those altars of the past, Remembering the words of Jesus and where God has moved in our lives will remind us that our call is not to a specific vocation, a certain title, or position. It is one part of our calling, but may we be reminded that the other part of our calling as Christians is to love God and to love others. The question we must continually face is, will you follow me today? Will you take up your cross today? When you get to those difficult places and you just feel stuck, call upon those altars. Remember God's story that you've been invited into and the roles that you've played in it thus far, the roles that God has given you. When you've been in a profession for so long and you've forgotten why you were called to it in the first place, Reflect on how God has been faithful in the past. Remember that you didn't bring yourself to this place or to these opportunities, but God did. These altars can serve to help you to remember God's faithfulness as you wander through desert lands or hesitate on your next step. They will sustain you and they will bring you forward. As you go forth today, I pray that you will revel in the limitless presence of God, that you stand in awe at the gate of heaven that is before you, that you will have eyes to see the places in your world that God collides into, and that you will mark these encounters and hold them to carry you through every step of the way. Amen.